Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 836 with Anne Daofam. Anne has some excellent wisdom when it comes to keeping projects moving, using influence, leading without authority to ultimately getting the project to the promised land, over the finish line, done, done, done. So you'll learn one, the essential question to get any project moving. Two, an overlooked skill that boosts project success rates. And three, two things you need for people to align with your goals. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP836. And while there, check out some of our goodies like the transcripts, the gold nugget emails, so much goodness over at awesomeatyourjob.com. And here's a bit of goodness about Anne. Anne Dalfam is the VP of Product and Program Management at Edmunds.com. She successfully led technical projects for two decades at startups and major corporations. In her book, Glue, How Project Leaders Create Cohesive, Engaged, High-Performing Teams, and Vividly Brings Compassionate, Positive, and Nimble Leadership to Life. Demonstrating with actionable guidance, the power of caring and connection to inspire outstanding results. Anne lives with her husband and two children in Los Angeles, California. Big thanks to Anne for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Anne. Anne, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you so much for having me here, Pete. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom about project leadership and high-performing teams. But first, I think we need to hear a little bit about your history of writing jingles and rhymes associated with team accomplishments. What's the story here? And can you give us some examples, please? Yeah, this is a really silly thing. A few years ago when I was working at Opower, I was one of the more senior leaders on the engineering team and I was asked to give a quarterly update. And the first time I gave that quarterly update, it was so dry. (laughs) I think everybody fell asleep, including me, if I could have. But the reason it was so dry was because when you work in product development and you're leading an engineering team, the engineering team's accomplishments are very similar to the product update. So if the product team gives an update and then you give yours, it's almost the same. So the next time I was called upon to do a quarterly update, I decided not to give the general product update and instead decided to write like a tribute to the team in jingle format. So I got some inspiration from the Brady Bunch tune and then wrote a jingle about our product managers and our engineers and how they had delivered on this website product and then got folks on the team to actually sing it during the (laughs) quarterly all hands. And it was a really big hit. And from then on, it became kind of a tradition at Opower. So every quarterly update, they would look for the jingle. We'd get a bunch of people to sing. And we had some great, great things out there. And so since then, 
instead of just giving normal praise or an update when I have like a big team accomplishment or a big milestone the team has approached, then oftentimes I'll write a jingle and then I'll recruit people to sing it. And so as an example, this last holiday season, instead of having like a big party because everybody was remote, I ended up writing 17 limericks for everybody on the team. (laughs) And I read them out like in a toast format and it was a pretty big hit. There's something very novel about writing a rhyme or a jingle. And I find that it's very memorable. People really appreciate it. It shows them that you care in a very special way. And it gives people just that special feeling when being on a team. And so I wanted to tell you, I had a surprise for you because I decided before I got on the show that I would write you a jingle. Oh, Just so you can see this in action. So it's actually a, a limerick. So here it is. There once was a host named Pete whose podcast was rather sweet. He interviewed people with tips to share for being awesome at work everywhere. And on top of that, he gave it all away for free. Oh, lovely. Thank you. (laughs) That is a first 830-some episodes first limerick. So thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) That's fun. Okay, cool. Well, I'm excited to dig into those kinds of tidbits, your unique flavor and, and spin on Project Goodness. You've got a book called Glue, How Project Leaders Create Cohesive, Engaged, High Performing Teams, which is a great title. We like those sorts of things here. Can you tell us any particularly novel, surprising, fascinating, counterintuitive discoveries you've made about this stuff over the course of your career and put together the book? I'd say the most surprising thing is that when I set out to write Glue, I didn't realize how much of an influence books on social psychology and happiness would be an influence on the actual content in the book. And for a few years prior to writing Lou, I was doing a little bit of soul searching. I read a a number of books on the science of happiness from different social psychologists like Adam Grant, Angela Duckworth, Sean Aker, just a bunch of very well-known authors in that space. And it turns out that a lot of the work that supports the science of happiness around how to make yourself happy ends up being really applicable content for how to motivate teams. And so in my work and in Glue, I talk a lot about the science of happiness, social psychology, and how to motivate and influence people through those same mechanisms, um, which I think makes that unique. And for me, it's most important when I'm a leader to help teams not only deliver, but do it in a way that makes them feel fulfilled and happy at work. And so I think a lot of that comes through and ends up being somewhat surprising or novel content for a leadership book. You don't typically find as many studies around the science of happiness. Mm, Well, we love those here. So (laughs) it's no surprise that we have found each other. So that's cool. Well, then I'd love it if, if we could dig into some particulars. Could you start off with the core message or big idea or, or thesis behind the book? So Glue at the End of the Day is both a project management leadership book and the main principle behind it is that I wanted to be able to express to people how you can both manage teams and lead people in a way that makes them productive so that they deliver, but also makes them really happy and inspired with their jobs. And that in turn inspires me and makes me feel better about my job. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, so let's dig in now. One thing that's intriguing is you have, you draw a distinction between a project manager, a project leader. What is the difference and and why does that matter? The main distinction between a project manager and a project leader is that you don't necessarily have to have a title 
in order to be a project leader. Project leaders rise up through all parts of the organization because there is a need to have somebody lead a particular initiative or a particular team. And what I find is that people often, if they don't have like an ordained title in some way, feel like they don't have the authority to act in a certain way. So I wanted to make the distinction between somebody who has an official title of project manager, which has like a specific job description associated with it, versus a person who just may have risen up in the organization and is a leader of sorts but would likely need very similar tools and tactics to be able to make their team successful. So at the end of the day, you can be a project leader from any part of the organization. You just have to be a person who has stepped up to lead in some capacity on a particular initiative. And I'm hoping that this book is applicable much more broadly than just anybody with a specific project manager title. Okay. Well, and getting a taste of what could be possible and at stake for us if we internalize some of these best practices. Could you share a cool story of a project leader who is able to see a beautiful upgrade in the results they are able to create by following some of these principles? I wanted to start with an analogy from a different industry entirely, which is basketball. I'm actually not a basketball fan. so. But one of the things that I realized as I was doing research for the book was I was talking to one of my best friends who is into basketball about the book and about some of the principles that I was talking about, about being glue. And he said, oh, it's like Draymond Green. He's a glue guy and he plays basketball. And I'm like, tell me more about this. And it turns out that there's a phenomenon in basketball where there are players called glue guys who are extremely valuable to the teams, but they are not the people who score the most points. So it seems counterintuitive. Like typically when you think about a star basketball player, you think about somebody like a Michael Jordan who scores the most baskets. In this case, These players are most valuable, not because they actually score the most points, but because they are true team players. And so when they're on the court, what happens is the teams have a much higher likelihood to achieve success and win the games than when they're not on the court, even though they don't actually score. And the principles around glue are basically the same. So it's not about being a leader, being out in front, getting all the credit for something or being the star player on a particular team. It's about looking at a team and trying to figure out what you can do to actually bolster the productivity of the team, make them feel healthier, happier, complete the team where they may have gaps. And that's what the essence of glue is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so that sounds like something we all love to be here at in terms of listeners of how do we also make your job. And now I'd like to dig into some of the particulars. I love your table of contents. Chapter titles are just so enticing and captivating. So I'm just going <laughs> to go right through my favorites and, and ask bit by bit. First, how do we build rapport quickly? There are a lot of ways to build rapport quickly. And actually, You'll notice that my book was endorsed by Robert Cialdini. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called Influence, which is immensely popular. We've had him on the show and we love him. Oh, he's so good. He's amazing. There's all these tactics that you can use that help you understand how to build rapport with people and how to influence people without actually having authority. And so a lot of things are very simple. Like in Robert Cialdini's book, he talks about just making sure that you, when you speak with a person, you actually provide a reason for what you're asking to do. And when you do things like that, where you ask a person to actually complete a task for you or make a request, and you provide them a reason for the work that they're doing, it helps them understand why their work is important and ultimately builds rapport and, and helps them trust you more. So that's one principle. Another one comes from Dale Carnegie, which is really simple. It's just using people's names. But in a multicultural environment, and in particular in a remote environment, it's even more important that you use people's names 
and that you also get their pronunciations correctly and that you know how to spell their names correctly. These are small things, but they make a really big difference in building rapport with a particular person. And then another tip is to just make sure that you're accessible and approachable. So if you have a team that you're trying to get to know, maybe arrange some social situation where you can get to know them better. Take some time at the beginning of your meetings to pause a little bit, have some informal conversation to warm up, talk about their weekend, make them feel like they're people, not just a person who's actually completing a task with somebody you genuinely care about and are interested in. Those are the best things that you can do to start building rapport. And then the final thing, which is something that I get quoted on a lot, is I call it the candy bowl, the magical candy bowl. And you'll see this in the chapter title where I always keep a candy bowl on my desk. And the reason that I do that is because it embodies a bunch of these principles. It makes me approachable in the sense that it gives people a reason to actually come to my desk and talk to me. Oftentimes, people actually come to my desk and take candy when I'm not there, (laughs) But, (laughs) but it establishes me as a giver. So even if I wasn't there, they remember Anne has a candy bowl on her desk and I can come get it whenever I want. And if I then talk to them later, even if we haven't had a conversation, it actually creates a certain amount of equity with them. Like I've deposited something in their virtual piggy bank. And if I go talk to them later, they already have a warm feeling associated with me because I've given them something whether or not I know it. And so that to me is like a very classic trick. And I have always had a candy bowl at my desk since I can remember. That's lovely. I've got a couple of follow-up questions there. And one is what candies are the fan favorites perennial time after time? Branded chocolate goes the fastest. (laughs) Any kind, like Kit Kat or... Yeah, like Hershey's, Snickers, Reese's Pieces, anything that's branded. I've tried generic chocolate, like Palmer's during the holidays, you know, when you get the Easter eggs and things Uh like that, they don't go quite as fast. But anything that's like, yeah, Kit Kat, (laughs) Reese's, M&M's, chocolate M&M's, those go really fast. And it's kind of my own experiment over the years. That's something you see is what type of snack actually goes the fastest. And there's something interesting about like the amount of candy that you put in the bowl as well. This Mm. is such a random nuance. But if you put too much candy in the bowl, especially if let's say I get a brand new bag of chocolate and I dump the whole thing in the bowl, it goes faster. Yeah. There's something about like the idea that there's just a lot of candy that people will come and take like a handful of it. But if I ration it and put it out in smaller segments, then it tends to last a lot longer. People will come and take one or two rather than like a handful. So um, very interesting. (laughs) I have absolutely noticed this phenomenon with, I was thinking like just drinking water in terms of if I have a big vessel of water, I will take bigger gulps more frequently versus if I've got a bottle of water, I'm at my last thirds, like, Ooh, we better be sparing, even though there's more, (laughs) Yeah, there's more, not too far away. It just, it gets inside you. That's good. Well, and my next follow-up question is when it comes to using names, how much is too much? I mean, sometimes I feel like I hold myself (laughs) back more than I need to, Anne. And so now I'm just going to try it a little bit right now. And you tell me when it feels excessive. I'm thinking when you address someone, of course, that just makes sense. Or when you're wrapping something up, like, thank you, Anne. I guess every sentence would be too much. Do you have a sense for how much is too much when it comes to name use? There probably is a too much. Like, yeah, I'd say every sentence is probably too much. But if you go back to what Dale Carnegie said, and I reference this in the book, the sound of a person's name is the sweetest sound to them. So if you can use it tastefully, in particular, if you can use it to address a person when you're prompting them for a question. So I think that's really important is addressing a particular person, addressing or acknowledging something that somebody said so that they understand that you actually heard them. 
those two, I think, are the most critical times to say a person's name so that they really feel like you're making a connection with them. That is good. And I'm thinking about my buddy and, and mentor, Maui, episode number one. He will insert my name right in the middle of sentences and more than most people I know, and I really like it. <laughs> He'll say, and you know what we discovered, Pete? And I'm like, well, what? What did you discover? <laughs> it's like, you have galvanized my attention and I want to know even more. And if I happen to be drifting, I really do feel like, oh, I should really pay attention. He's talking directly to me, even though, of course, he was. We're only two people at this lunch, but it has an effect. It's a good one. Thank you. Exactly. And I think in particular, if you're working in a remote environment, using people's names is extremely important. A lot of times people have their cameras off. And if you use their name, they know you're speaking directly to them, even if they can't see you. So I think it is an even more important tool to be using now than it has been in the past. Okay. And another table of contents prompt so juicy. What is the essential question to getting any project moving? What are the next steps? It's the most powerful question that you can ask at the end of every meeting. If you leave and you don't ask that question, you're going to find that you're going to be less productive on all of your projects. And so that's if there's no other question that you ask, if you're silent the whole meeting as a facilitator, in the very end, you make sure to ask, what are the next steps? who's going to be doing them, and then capture that information, you will be able to move your project forward. Absolutely. This reminds me of, of David Allen for individuals getting things done. You know, what is the next action? And it, it's just magic how it gets stuff unstuck. And sometimes it's so simple. It's like, oh, I guess we got to look at our calendars to see when these three people can get together. Like, oh, okay. Exactly. Well, that's not so hard. Let's just go ahead and do that. Exactly. And I think if you're doing any sort of leadership, in particular project leadership, your goal really is to always be making progress. So even if it's small, as long as you're moving the project forward with something like, I know what the very next step is, it doesn't have to be the next 10 steps, just the very next one, you're going to continue to move everybody forward and make progress against your goals. All righty. Now, everybody asks you to teach a particular skill, which I, I would not have guessed. It's note-taking What's up with that? Why does note-taking matter? And how can you do it in a way that is differentiatedly excellent that matters? <laughs> I am very passionate about note-taking. This is one of the strange traits about me. And most people, almost everybody who's encountered me even briefly at work knows this about me. It's something that's actually, to me, a cornerstone of my success in my career. I take avid notes. I type very fast. I take avid notes almost on every call or meeting that I have, even if I'm not going to publish them because it's part of my learning process. And the reason that people ask me about it is because I often publish those notes out. So as a part of my learning process, when I'm learning more information, I t intake them. And I don't just sort of listen to things verbatim. I listen to things and then I rephrase them as I'm typing them or I try to reorganize them. So when I was in college, I learned like if you take notes in outline format, your retention of that information is so much higher than if you just sort of listen to something coming in your one ear and then typing out verbatim what people have said. Mm -hmm. So what I started to do is sort of reorganize the information, put it in such a way that it is summarized, and then send all that information out and broadcast it to people so that they know that they've been heard, they know whose action is next, what the next steps are, all of the things that were important as a part of those discussions get captured, codified, and then broadcasted. And it is possible to be significantly better at taking notes than another person mm -hmm. <laughs> in the sense that if you take really good notes, 
in particular in today's environment, when you're managing a lot of projects and things are moving very fast, a lot of things don't get documented. So oftentimes a good set of notes is the document that explains what happened and ends up being a system of record for any decisions that are being made. So if you become that person who takes really good notes and people know that, you start to just have a certain amount of power because you hold this information and people see you as a person who has access to this information very readily. The other thing about it is, like I said before, if I take good notes, then I learn more than almost anybody else in the conversation. It just crystallizes my memory for it so that when people ask me about it later, I have much greater recallability. And when it's summarized in that fashion, I once had a person tell me he went home after my meeting and told his wife, these notes were better than the meeting (laughs) because a lot of times meetings will meander back and forth. But if you've like consolidated the information (laughs) under certain bullets, you can read this nice summary. It refreshes your memory and you know exactly where to go after that. So yeah, those to me are the big key traits around taking good notes is making sure that they're organized, making sure that they capture what's most important as a part of the conversation and that you share them out so that people know you have access to them and can refer back to them. <laughs> you know, we might have to do a full follow-up episode if you're down <laughs> to talk about note-taking. Because, I mean, if it's your superpower and no one else has brought that up as their superpower and it's yielding value, that's totally cool. So well, I'll just restrain myself to a couple <laughs> follow-ups for, for this conversation. Absolutely. So you're not just verbatim writing all the things you hear, but you're rather trying to give some organization outline to it. So when I'm hearing the word outline, I could think of a very strict Roman numeral one, indent, capital A, further indent, Arabic numeral one. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's like very formal when I'm learning how to do write a paper in grade school outline. Is that what you mean by outline in terms of the, the transformation that you're mentally processing stuff? as you outline? No, actually, it doesn't have to be. I mean, if that's really comfortable to you or your word processing application automatically numbers things for you, I think it's fine. But it's more important that you categorize information. So if a topic meanders, as an example, sometimes let's say we talked about note taking now and then Mm -hmm. in five more minutes, it comes back again. What I would do is have a topic of note taking in my notes. And then I would put a couple of bullets from the first part of the conversation. And then in the second part, I would move that up so that it's in the same section. So when somebody's skimming it, they can see all of the takeaways all together at the same time. And it's not so important that you have like a strict way of taking the notes as it is that you've summarized the information. And what's even more critical is that you summarize the information in your own words. So don't try to take notes verbatim as somebody said them try to restate them in your own words so that it comes out more naturally and to confirm that you actually understood what it was that was being said. Because oftentimes when people speak, it doesn't make for eloquent or concise writing, right? So if you summarize it in a good way, then people can read it, get the takeaways very quickly rather than trying to skim through all the ums and ahs that actually come out in a conversation. Sure thing. And to give us a taste, can we find a sample of your note-taking somewhere? Yeah. In the book, I actually put a few samples, one of the worst notes or no notes at all. Mm -hmm. So if you just take basic notes, it's still better than no notes. The second tier up is at least capture key decisions and action items and who's responsible for them. So there's a sample of what that looks like. Then there's sort of like the next layer of fidelity, which is capturing a few key decisions in a little bit more detail. And then there's like a more robust version of those notes. And the sample I gave is from like a home remodeling project, which may have been overkill for a home remodeling project, but at least gives you an idea of the types 
of things that you would want to capture. Some of the salient points in the conversation that you might want to have for context later, those are the types of things that you might want to capture if you were taking really robust notes. And in particular, the why behind decisions. So if you're capturing Mm -hmm. just a decision, but not why, if you take those in your notes, it again helps you understand it. And then it also helps you convey that information to other people. I like that a lot. And I imagine it might vary a bit, but just to give us a bit of reference, if there's a 30 minute meeting, which might have a word count of 4,500 ish words, <laughs> that's a lot of podcast ads to experience talking right there. 150 words per minute. <laughs> How many words or pages might your notes end up being? It really depends on how efficient the conversation was. So it could be that you had a 30-minute meeting, but you swirled around talking about different options and deliberating them and debating them. And the end, your summary may have been as concise as maybe half a page. You said, we talked about option one, option two, option three, we made this decision, and this is why. It could be that concise. And so it doesn't have to be verbose. It just has to capture the most salient points. Now, sometimes you have a meeting, like I had one with one of my managers this morning and we covered 15 topics. And so, and it was 30 minutes and it was like, bullet, here's what we discussed, bullet, here's what we discussed. And that one ended up being more than a page long just for me to sort of capture those points. So I think it really depends on how much ground you cover. It's not so much what your word count is, but what were the most important things that you needed to capture and what's the most concise way to capture them? Okay. Well, now could you share with us the three levers to keep your project on time and on track? Sure. So this is actually the one thing in the book that does sort of follow classical project management. There's really three things. It's scope, meaning how much you're actually trying to achieve in a particular project. Time, which is the amount of time it's going to take. And then resources, which could be either money or the number of people working on a particular project. That's like the classic triangle of constraints for any project management course you would see. And when you're managing a project, it's really important for you to understand what levers you actually have available to you. And so if there is something that ends up being a gotcha or a surprise, which always happens, no project ever goes as planned, then you can look to see which of these constraints are movable. And the easiest thing typically to do is to increase your timeline. But oftentimes, if you increase your timeline on a project too often or too much, then people fatigue of the project and they feel like it's not successful. So you want to use that very sparingly. Then next is resources. If you have any resources, you can throw at a project or if you can clear things off of a plate of a person who's on the project so that they're not as splintered and you can get more capacity, that's always a good way to go about doing things. And then scope is something that people forget is negotiable. Because even if people say at the very beginning of a project, the scope is not negotiable, the closer you get to launching your project, the scope gets much more malleable. And that's for two reasons. One is that people are more or less willing to actually yield on things that they want very early in the process. And the second is that the closer you get to launching a particular project, the more clear you are about what you're trying to achieve. And so things that seem like they may have been very important at the beginning tend to be more negotiable or more malleable towards the end. So I like to lean on scope first, then resources, then time if possible. Mm, I love that. I'm familiar with the triangle and the constraints. I learned that in college and it was an eye-opener and I love, and those extra layers and considerations and weightings that you put on them. So, So handy stuff. I'm just going to keep rolling through your excellent table of contents. Chapter 13, (laughs) how do we communicate what's most important? Through every medium possible. Okay. This sounds funny. This is sort of like your question, how much is too much when you're using my name? 
How much is too much when you're articulating a goal? It's almost never too much. And the reason is because people are very focused on their individual tasks and it's very easy for them to lose sight of what's going on for a bigger picture. So if you're trying to orient somebody against a goal, then what you want to do is first make sure that the goal is clear and unambiguous. Everybody understands what it is. Then second, articulate it in writing verbally. (laughs) If you want to plaster it on a wall, like do whatever you can to broadcast the goal and do it in multiple mediums and to reinforce it almost every chance you get. I had a very funny example where I was marching towards a big project and every day at the very beginning of the scrum, which is the meeting that we had for everybody getting together to check in on status every day, I had a slide at the very beginning before we actually went to scrum that said how many days were left to the goal, to the launch date. And so 15, 14, 13, counting down every day. And two times, (laughs) very close to the launch date, I think it was like, I remember it was like five days to the launch date. Somebody pulled me aside and was like, wait, when are we launching again? (laughs) And I realized, and so I just very politely said, we're launching in five days. This is the date. And it's funny because people learn through different mediums. Some of people are audio learners. So if you say it to them, they actually get it. Some people are visual. So if you broadcast it visually in some way, that's when they get it. Some people need those things reinforced and some people actually need to say it themselves. So if you really want to know if somebody has actually ingested and internalized your goal, you can ask them to say it back to you. And only when they've actually articulated, do you know for sure that they actually understood it? That's good. That's good. And I guess you have to be careful with that so as to not seem, I don't know, patronizing or condescending. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to just take the requests and respond to them and know that you're going to be repeating yourself Mm -hmm. a lot, but that it's just totally expected. And that as long as you're always tying it back to the work that people are doing, they're not going to feel like it's too much. That's good. All right, Anne, let's hear chapter 14. When is your project done? It's not when I think, do tell. This chapter is actually about the principle of taking ownership on a project. And one of the things that I think is a big misconception is people put together a project plan when they start a new project and there's typically a launch date at the end. And that's what you're marching towards. So let's say you've got a three-month project, you're launching towards a launch date. And then at the end of the launch date, people feel like their project is done. But that is not the case (laughs) because oftentimes... Like I said, maybe you're marching through that to that launch date and you've looked at all these constraints because there was some crazy surprise that happened and now you've started to cut scope. And I like to call cutting scope very close to the launch date as roadkill. This was like roadkill on the path to getting to my goal. I started like pushing things to the side and saying, not critical, not critical. So once you've launched, there typically is like a number of things that still need to be happening in order for you to make your project a success. It can't just be launched and sort of out in the ether. You need to go back and take care of all the things that you designated as roadkill along the way. Maybe you need to do additional communication to people who were stakeholders, but may be impacted after the fact. So a key example here is if you work in product development or if you're launching any product or new thing, oftentimes there are people who have to support that new thing once it's out. So it's not just like making the feature available or the new product available. It's also about making sure that the people who are going to need to support that are trained and have all the answers that they need to be able to do that in a sustained fashion. Or there's a place to escalate when there's an issue with whatever that is that you've just released. And so all of these things happen after a project launch date, but the project launch date is most commonly focused on as the end of your project. And so in the chapter, I talk about this. It's not so much that there are steps that you can do to say when your project is done. It's more about an attitude. 
if you take ownership of a project as a project leader and you think of yourself almost like the CEO of your project, then you don't limit yourself to the scope of work that's already been defined or what's been defined to you by your title. So if you're a product manager in my world, I might say like, well, my goal is to define the product and get it out there. But if I want it to be a success, I might have to do things that are beyond the launch date, beyond the scope of my role. And so if you really think of yourself as an owner and that you are paramount to this project success, then you will look to see what else needs to be done after that launch date. And until those things are completed, you'll know that your job is not done. The other thing is always plan a celebration when you hit a big milestone. Don't forget at the tail end of a big project. It's not done until you celebrate it with your team. Beautiful. Well, Anne, tell me any final thoughts you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Sure. I'd say at the end of the day, leading projects and leading people is not cookie cutter. And I think this is probably the biggest thing that's not fully articulated in this way in the book, but hopefully is a big key takeaway for people. Most of the things that I do are very people-driven. I am most worried about boosting productivity for the people on my team, and I do whatever it takes to make that happen. So every project, every team is custom, and you're different. The way that you add your perspective to a team is different. And so I would like to warn people against blindly following checklists and instead think about ways that you can customize your approach based off of the team's needs and what you're trying to accomplish and the personalities on the team. And know that if you do that, you're going to be a lot more successful than somebody who is just trying to apply some set of rules blindly without thinking them through. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yes. From one of my favorite books on happiness, uh, What Happy People Know by Dan Baker and Cameron Stouff. The quote is, we don't describe the world we see, we see the world we describe. And I love this because it's very telling about human thoughts in the sense that we often think that things are dictated to us, but in fact, we actually have a lot of power to transform our worlds based off of what we call ourselves. So if you call yourself a project manager versus a project leader, that makes a really big difference in how you actually translate your role and your sense of ownership. And so I love that quote because every time I feel like I'm being limited by the way that I'm calling myself something or the way that I'm framing a particular scenario, I try to reframe it to see if I can change the way that the world is reacting to me. I like that a lot. And I don't know where I borrowed this phrase. I got it from a job description, which I just thought was funny. I think it said, one of the requirements was to, quote, provide visionary leadership. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so easy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like that. And I thought, all right, what's on my to-do list today? Okay, uh, provide visionary leadership. Uh, check. <laughs> and so, but I found that when I say that to myself, like, okay, I'm going to write a bunch of emails to my team and, and collaborators, right? It's like, okay, so one view is, okay, that's the thing that's got to get out the door. A bunch of emails, check, check, check. Versus if I say to myself, but I'm kind of joking and I've been highfalutin for the fun of it. It's like, all right, all my to-do list is to provide visionary leadership on uh, these uh, course adaptations. And then I, sure enough, I really do feel more jazzed about it and really do spend some more time providing useful feedback and, and direction that is more enriching for folks. So yeah, how I describe that to-do list item really does shape how I perform it, even though I was kind of joking. Yeah, no, I mean, there's studies about this. It's called job casting, where you take your job and you try to put it in a bigger context. So, for example, you're a podcast host. You could say, my job is to create podcasts. 
Or you could say your job is to put more information out in the world so that you can help people all over the world be better at their jobs. I mean, the second one is going to be so much more inspiring than the first, right? So the way that you frame what you're doing has a very tangible impact on your perspective and how motivated you are going to be to do that job. So I think that that's so insightful. And the fact that you actually have the power to change your own perception by describing it differently, I think is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? This is a hard one because a lot of your prior guests have cited lots of great studies. And so I was trying to find one that I felt was unique. And I ended up landing on a study that Sean Aker, who's the author of The Happiness Advantage, did to himself, (laughs) which I think about all the time. And it's a very novel study about what it takes to adopt new habits versus what it takes to deter yourself from stopping or to to deter yourself from continuing to do old habits that are not so good for you. And he calls it the 22nd rule. And the experiment goes like this. He wanted to play his guitar more often. And so he had a guitar that he bought. It was in his closet. And he decided to see if he removed the friction from playing the guitar by just buying a stand and then putting the guitar out in the middle of the room, whether or not he would actually play his guitar more often. And it turns out just the additional friction of getting up off the couch, going over to the closet, getting the guitar out reduced his amount of time that he would actually play on the guitar. So he had a lot of success in just moving it from one location to another. And then he did another experiment, which I thought was so funny. He had a remote control that he typically used to leave on his couch so that when he watched television, it's there. That's what everybody does. The remote control is right on their television. So you plop down on the couch, you've got it, and then you turn it on. But he wanted to stop watching as much television and instead uh, read more books. So what he did was he took the batteries out of his remote control and he put them in a drawer that was a few feet away. And he said he timed himself. It took him about 20 seconds if he were to get up out of the couch, go to the drawer, put the batteries in and close the remote control to start using it. And his goal was to see if he created that a little little additional friction if he would stop watching television as much. And so what he found was he did. He stopped watching television as much because people are sort of inherently lazy. And that additional 20 seconds of friction actually caused him to pick up the book that was like right within arm's reach on the couch rather than watch television. So I find that to be like a fantastic study. And in my real life, I use it both at home as well as at work. When I think about why people are not responding to me or not able to complete a different task that I ask them to do, I see, is there a way that I can make their job easier? So for example, If you ask people very open-ended questions, it's difficult for them to answer because they have to craft a response from scratch. But if you give them statements that they have to react to, that takes a lot less brain power. So you can be much more effective at getting responses that way. Another example is in my home life. My husband's 6'2 and I'm 5'4". And so... I love post-its. I put them, you know, write things on all the time. If there's a reminder I want to give him. There's one trick that I have done more recently that is very effective. It's when I have a reminder for him and not me, I write it on a post-it and then I put it at his eye level, not mine. Mm -hmm. And just by virtue of it being right in front of him instead of right in front of where I would be, he has a much harder time missing it and knows it's for him. That's good. And a favorite book? A favorite book. This is really hard. I've just quoted What Happy People Know by Dan Baker and Cameron Stout. That's one of my all-time favorites in terms of happiness as well as the happiness advantage. And then in terms of non-sort of self-help or happiness books, I recently enjoyed a couple of memoirs. I really liked Untamed by Glennon Doyle and then also Crane H. Mart by Michelle Zahner. Okay. 
And you have a particular nugget you're known for, something that people quote back to you often? Outside of note-taking and the candy bowl effect. It's <laughs> plenty, really. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, those are nuggets. The one thing that about the book that's actually been very controversial and has come up mm. quite a bit is I do have a chapter about planning where I state that I believe plans are optional. And this is almost like sacrilege for the <laughs> project management community, but it's created a lot of controversy. And it's not so much that I'm against planning. It's that, like I said before, I'm against people following things blindly and doing things for the sake of doing them rather than doing things with specific intention. And so I challenge the notion that every single project needs to have like a detailed project plan. Instead, if you're looking for ways to boost team productivity, tailor the process to your team, plan when your team needs a plan and be thoughtful about it. That to me has been like a really insightful takeaway that most people have come back to me and asked me about and particularly controversial. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'd love it if folks could find me at my website. It's www.glueleaders.com. Pretty easy to find. Um, You can contact me there, find everything about the book and also a link to this podcast once it's available. Well, thank you. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, actually, I was listening to your podcast and I think it was episode 830 with Dr. Waldinger where he cited a Gallup quote that I also cited in my book about making friends and making best friends at work and how that increases both productivity as well as enjoyment. And if you take nothing else away from all this, you know, there's a lot of little tactics and tricks that you can do to build rapport, be more organized, take notes. But at the end of the day, to me, the most rewarding thing at work is when you make personal connections. And so what I would love to advocate people do is Don't just think of your job as a job. Think of it as a way to make meaningful connections with people and to accomplish great things together and bring part of yourself to work. And the reason that I started writing jingles was because I like to rhyme and it's silly, but it's very uniquely me. And if you love to cook, maybe organize potlucks. If you love ping pong, maybe organize a ping pong tournament. My husband and I like to play poker. And so now we're thinking about combining my love of cooking Vietnamese soups and poker with a poker night. <laughs> so those are things that you can do to bring to your workers. And it makes it more rewarding when you actually create genuine friendships and then accomplish things together. So what I would say is find ways to connect with people at work, make friends, and in doing so, hopefully both your job as well as your coworkers' jobs will be more rewarding. All right. And thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much fun and good glue. (laughs) Thank you. So nice to meet you. I really appreciated Anne's reminder to use people's names more often. I think I forget to do this. And then sometimes I have this weird paranoia that I'm forgetting or mistaking someone's name. Like they prefer to be called Steve instead of Steven and I might get it wrong and they could be offended. I don't know. But there's a little bit of resistance I have to using names. And I found with Anne's reminder, I am better able to listen super carefully to make sure I got that name right and then use it all the more to galvanize attention and to have that sweet music resonating in the other person's ear. I'm also excited about this note-taking thing. And so you guys are going to have to let me know if it's just me and my dorkiness. Could you drop me an email, pete at awesomeatyourjob.com 
to let me know, yes, Pete, I would love an episode on note-taking. Please make that. Or no, Pete, that is one I will definitely skip. I want to do it, but I want to make sure I am not just scratching my own itch, but creating something that is needed and of value to you. So again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items you've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP836. I hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.